Hey, all my IFG friends, this is Steve. I want to say, you know, if you like movies like I do, we've started a new podcast called Happy Hour Flicks. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's all about nostalgic movies that we love, and we bring on special guests each episode, and we also have specialty cocktails made for each one, too. So it really is an hour of a good time talking about movies that we love, like Gremlins, uh, Seven, uh, Free Willy. Uh, we talk about The Last Starfighter also. So, I mean, we kind of run the gamut across all the decades and really have a great time. So I wanted to invite you to come over and join us at Happy Hour Flicks, anywhere podcasts are found. Deirdre had my mom and Kevin had my dad just off the script. They just, they were them. Was it, did your parents know that they were being more or less portrayed by these characters? Oh my God. My mom's like, I come off great. <laughs> <laughs> This is the, the independent, independent, independent filmmaker's guide from Framework Productions. Framework, Framework Productions. On IFG, we talk about independent film from development through delivery. By featuring discussions with creators and collaborators about their experiences, we form a roadmap to help you have the most success with your projects. Coming out to your family can be an extremely challenging moment in a person's life. We speak with filmmaker Jenna Lorenzo on making her film about that experience, told as a comedy. The mother-daughter relationship is the most important to me in that film. Um, and it was just a dream come true across the board. I fell madly in love with every single person involved in that film. That's Jenna Lorenzo, the writer, director, and lead actress in the movie Lesbom, which you can see on Netflix. I just wanted to write a script and I um, was dealing with realizing that I was gay and um, and I wanted the, the I wanted a comedy about coming out and it just didn't exist. I'm your host, Stephen Pierce. Most of the content within that space happened to be really dramatic um, and didn't it's particularly with the representation of lesbians, um, the ending wasn't happy. <laughs> So, so I, it was essentially scratching my own itch and looking, creating something that I, I needed to see but couldn't find. Uh, and so that script uh, started, I started playing with that story. But it was a lot more dramatic when I was writing the first draft because Right, I because had, it was a lot more serious probably in that, that point in your life. Yeah, I didn't have the I didn't have the distance from the emotion, you know, and then and then I had a draft and it was kind of angry. <laughs> and then, you know, as you sort of come into your own and then you can you have that the distance between the emotion, you have that, I guess, periphery and to see the, the comedy within it. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. You write something that's very, very heartfelt and very probably hard to talk about. And then you put it away, which is typically when scripts are best, right? You know, you do something and then kind of walk away from it for a bit. And then you come back and find the tone for what you want to say. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I've now, I've now recognized, oh, I'm like, whenever, whenever there's a script sort of tapping me on the shoulder, when I want to avoid it, it's usually because there's a nerve that I'm not willing to uh, hit yet. Uh, and so, um, it's just kind of like this graceful act between effort and, um, knowing when to back off. Do you do stand up as well? I don't. 
Okay, so I was about to say, that sounds exactly like how a stand-up comedian approaches stuff, right? Like shit that's bothering them right now, tonight, tomorrow makes it on the stage. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I would, I, I, I would, I can imagine that process being, yeah, similar. So now ten, fast forward 10 years, you're writing the script. Did you do anything like, how did you, for comedy, did you test it? Did you show it to friends? How did you determine when the script was quote unquote finished? I think Lesbom, when all said and done, had well over 150 drafts. Uh, yeah. And, in, and it, for, for me, there's something about comedy that um, just there's a rhythm that feels right. It's like, it feels like playing, I grew up playing sports. And so, you know, like when the ball, the ball goes in the net or it doesn't go in the net, it, it, it sort of feels like that. It's like it lands or it doesn't land. Yeah, you or like a rhythm with your teammates, maybe is kind of how I was thinking about it. Like, you know, when people are in the right position and not versus whenever you're just kind of isolated and stuck. Yeah, totally. And like in, in reading the script, um, there were like, you can hear, I can, I can feel when something seems to be working whether it or not it's landing for other people it's hard to tell until people start reading it but i do have a certain level of trust when it comes to oh this this feels funny and then um and then making sure the story is landing um that is really helpful when you bring in other points of view i mean with writing comedy i feel there's a real balance of structure and you know in character voice like dialogue kind of stuff because you kind of have to sometimes you rely on the plot structure to be like the pace that you need. They need the dialogue to be the actual funny. Yeah, sure. And I am a huge fan of, um, I, I like situational comedy. I always think that, I think that the greatest comedy comes out of the most uncomfortable situations. Right. I think that the best comedy is always based in conflict personally. Sure. I was, I always tell this story that like on, in, in 2005, I was, I was on a ship that almost capsized and everyone thought, we were dead for like 12 hours. And I remember at the height of that, just like, cause you like fatigue with that level of worry. At least that's what I experienced. You can only be worried and terrified for so long before you just kind of like hit a wall. And I just remember laughing at the absurdity that that was how I was going to go down. And like, and also I was like, like thinking that like, and like I was going to die and no one knew I was gay. And like, and then like, I was like pissed that the the experience was nothing like Titanic. There was no romance. Like, and I just went into this, like this, like tirade that was funny. Like I was laughing at the absurdity and, and I think, and I've always been in, I've always loved stories. I think that's the moment where I was like, you know what? There's always, there's always something funny. It doesn't matter what's going on. There's an absurd something that can be looked at and like mined for. But I've never met anybody that said, started a sentence with like, I almost died in a boat that capsized. <laughs> yeah. I, it was a, a formative experience, but like, again, like when, like only when you have the distance and you can look back at the way you experience these things and then sort of, deconstruct what was go the process that was going on i was literally just about to say this is 2005 it feels like we're a few years late to see the movie the comedy version of Titanic. <laughs> yeah. i know everyone's like are you gonna write that and i was like i feel like that's just gonna be a comedy about like me being wildly reckless for the six months following um <laughs> <laughs> i feel like there's a great story in there too because it's like you also said you know how it's um 
you know, you figure there's no romance. So instead of, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet running around being beautiful people, there's just like a fat white guy from Beloit eating a pudding cup. You know, no, I, was ass- I was assigned to like they assigned like the women to like um, if you were uh, if you were uh, one of the female students on the, on the higher deck because the highest decks were rocking the most. Like you got assigned a guy to hold on to, to you. And I was assigned this dude named Brian who came up to my waist and I was like, I should be holding on to Brian. <laughs> we were signed again. The guy's name being Brian <laughs> is fantastic. I'm just picturing like a, you know what I mean? Like a five, one, you know, beefy, you know, it's like, I was like, Brian, I got this. <laughs> Don't worry, Brian, hold on to my life jacket. I whole fo- it'll float both of us. Okay. All right. Well, that was, that is insane. So yeah. on the boat, I obviously did not capsize. Yeah. yeah. So we, we made it out alive and now I can tell stories. <laughs> okay. So back to why we're here. Um, so how did, let's jump forward to how did you, what I'm really interested to talk to you about is your cast is bananas good. Like, I mean, I mean, just mind blowingly good for a first time filmmaker. So how the hell did that happen? And who did you hustle? to get back. So, uh, you know, this thing, it sort of had a momentum on to itself that I felt like I just needed to get out of the way because it just um, came together in ways that I didn't. So I spent six years trying to attach a star and a director. It's really hard to attach people when you have no money. And um, after a lot of conversations, like people kept telling me that I was going to have to do it myself. Um, And I sort of resisted that. There's a lot of pressure within that. I think there was a lot of fear within that. Um, And, but you, again, you just kind of hit a wall and you're like, this thing's never going to get made. So I guess I'll just do, I'll do it. I'll do it myself. And it there's like a surrender to it. And so I did a proof of concept of what that would look like um, acting and directing. And then that proof of concept was a short film called girl night stand. Um, and that short film ended up going viral, which is how I got the financing. And once we had a producer attached, um, I, I still didn't have an idea of the cast that we were going to attach, you know, you know, I was trying to manage my expectations, um, especially as a first time filmmaker, uh, but I also, I like skin the thin, the, the, I, I skate the thin ice of optimism often, you know, uh, but you know, I just, I didn't know what to expect. And when we started, well, I had amazing casting directors, Mia Cusimano and Megan Rafferty and, and, and Mia has always been such a champion and a cheerleader, um, and like a guardian angel in my life. Um, and when we started going out to cast, um, her reps at the time, uh, helped us get the script to Kevin Pollack and Kevin, um, his agent, despite our budget, cause, uh, you know, as a favor gave the script to Kevin and Kevin really responded to the script, uh, and thought that there was an important message in it and ended up calling me and, you know, vetting me out. And we had like a half an hour conversation. He's like, all right, I'll see you in December. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, uh, let's do this. And it was just like, I can't, I was, I, it was just so, I, I, I was such a fan of his work and I've always been such a fan of his work and he was just so generous on the phone. And 
it's such a pleasure to chat with. Um, and once he said yes, it, uh, sort of like all these miraculous other pieces came together. Like Bruce Dern and Cloris Leachman were also at the same agency at the time. And then they were involved. Elaine Hendricks had said yes, which was um, in, like, I I was such a fan of hers um, when the parent trap came out. And, um, uh, and like, I always like had her in the back of my mind as someone that one day we would cross paths. And so it was baffling when someone said that she wanted to do the movie. It was like so weird. Cause I was like, I have always known I was meant to know Elaine Hendricks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the stars, it was written in the stars. So like all these things sort of just kind of came colliding um, together in ways that I just didn't anticipate, but sort of just uh, like allowed for them. Um, and then with Deirdre O'Connell for my mom, like she just, everything about her just felt right. She's so, she's the heart and she, she grounds the comedy and, and that really, the mother daughter relationship is the most important to me in that film. Um, and it was just a dream come true across the board. I fell madly in love with every single person involved in that film. So if you, it definitely started with that proof of concept that you attack, got a producer attached to connected you to Kevin Pollack who then can, seems like connected you to the agency that ultimately got you a couple of the big stars. And then that the rest is just, man, you uh, extreme fortune, but in a good way. Like yeah. you, were, you, you were a good person doing the right thing with the right message in the right room at the right time. Yeah, there was a lot of, um, it was, a, it was just a lot of things that came together in a serendipitous way. Right. And that's, I mean, that seems like so many of the stories, you know, we're hearing on here, they're very similar, like something like a location totally was done non-existent until the day of the shoot. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing how that happens yeah. like, consistently. So the viral video allowed you to gain financing. Did you go get private equity or did it allow, did you do a crowdfunding? No. So I had one, one main investor. Um, we had, we had, we had somebody um, also come in at the end when we um, needed some funds for finishing for, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but one main guy and he was connected to me through um, the producer, Rob Moran, who also plays my uncle in the film. He um, works with like these two other guys and he got his hands on the script had happened to be looking for a dysfunctional family comedy. And, um, he connected me to our, our financier and it so happened that I had this viral short that was showed that there was a audience hungry for this content that had an appetite. And, and I think it's really helpful when you can point to that. Um, it also provided invaluable analytics that we were able to use when it came down to the distribution of Lesbom um, by providing those to the distributor. So we could, can see target demographics exactly. and who would who was likely to purchase and engage for sure and also um which press pieces were impactful in mm. people and like bringing audiences eyes to something because you know sometimes as filmmakers we sort of like like we get press 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 but like there there's a, a bit more um there can be more strategy involved and like and realizing that sometimes um, a write-up here doesn't actually, nobody's actually reading it. And sometimes, like, other places, it, it, a lot of people are. And, and I think it allows you to sort of um, create a roadmap for yourself to hopefully follow. Were you doing that in pre-production or did you do that after you'd finished the film or were moving to distribution? 
Um, like both, you know, even like with, cause girl night stands like still get so many, um, hits daily. And I'm always interested in those analytics cause I think it, it's helpful to show, particularly when we're talking about LGBTQ representation plus rep- representation and, um, saying, oh, there's, there's a huge appetite. There's still a gap in the marketplace. We still have to fight for representation. Um, and one of the valuable lessons in terms of, of Lesbom is like once you sell the film, you can't really control the territories. You can release it. So I get messages from people like in territories that's not available looking to watch the film and I can't provide it. Um, like I don't have that ability anymore. And, and that was a lesson also within that journey. Wow. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I mean, just thinking about the. So you sold global rights to it um, whenever you sold it to Netflix, or was part of a distribute different distribution? We we sold the film to um, the distributor Gravitas. Had an amazing experience working with them. Um, really enjoyed that. Um, we uh, and they and then they ultimately sent sold it to Netflix. But like, I don't actually know, like, because it's. I, I would need to know all the verbiage of that better to speak to how that works. So, so Gravitas represents it, you know, theatrically, domestically, and yeah. they packaged it to Netflix as well. Yeah, yeah. Because one thing that I'm really curious about on Netflix is because it's it gives you huge notoriety, right? Like just now, unlike 10 years ago, being able to say like having a film on Netflix feels like a thing. Like people understand what that is. If you're on, you know, or SVOD, like if you're on like Hulu or, you know, Amazon, not the free one, um, like actual Amazon Prime. But so, but it does limit your ability to, you know, recoup financing, especially with something in your, your world that is very boutique or not, not boutique. It's very niche. Like yeah, there is yeah. an audience that's hungry for it that would probably purchase it. I'm curious to think if that, you know, is that something you feel like was the right move for you in the film is to go subscription because you're probably, I, I don't know. How do you feel like that balanced out? So I think it depends on who you ask on my team. If you ask me, I think it's amazing but to be on Netflix because I think as a filmmaker, it opens a lot right. of doors. Mm-hmm. Um, now from uh, like in terms of um, continue, like, but like then you can't continue to make money on the film once it's on Netflix. Yeah, so, you just get that one license payment per yeah. whatever term. Yeah, so there is a double-edged sword um, in many ways. I think, personally, I can go on a rant about this, but I feel like there's going to be a shift in where distribution is going, particularly for films that have clear audiences. I do think um, self-distribution is going to be where artists are going to find a, a means of um, sustainability in terms of creating the content that they want to create. Yeah, I feel as if, I mean, I, I don't think anybody knows right now, especially with the crisis, but it feels more like to me right now, it is getting a film on as a filmmaker like you, someplace like Netflix, someplace with notoriety, to give you a kind of a launching pad to establish your, you know, uh, industry credibility, Right. And mm-hmm. then from there, it feels as if you might benefit more going a different direction in the future because you have a different pathway that could offer more income over a long period of time. Right? Yeah. Just a single license. Also, I, I, I like I'm a I'm a curious person in general. So it's like, OK, well, I'm this. Is, that was an interesting journey. And let's see something else. What was your production for Lesbom like? Like uh, specifically, like let's look at schedule and time and how you made all this jigsaw puzzle start piecing itself together. 
Okay. Well, that's when we shot in 15 days. Um, that was crazy. And two blizzards. Uh, we had three pickup days, um, which became, that was like the second blizzard, which was cut that in half. So one and a half, essentially pickup days. I, I melted snow on my days off, uh, for continuity. It was crazy, but I do think that anytime you're presented sort of that pressure cooker situation, it, it really forces some of some creativity if, if you can see like the potential in the problems that present themselves. And like one of my favorite scenes that in Les Bomb came out of the fact that like we no longer could shoot outside. And so you had to morph an entire scene that's supposed to be exterior to interior. Yeah. And I had my fantastic editor. He, um, I couldn't be a bigger fan of, um, Bill, Bill Saunder. Um, he was on, he was with us during the production. He was editing the assembly, um, as we were going along. And so that made it a lot easier when we were moving that quickly to make sure we were getting what we needed. And when, that's one of the snowstorms hit. We couldn't shoot this, um, out this, the scene outside. Um, I could see that the movie was kind of like, it's a, it's a fast paced movie, you know, it, it like, and there was an opportunity for like a moment of breath. And I wouldn't have had that if everything had gone according to plan. So I was actually really grateful for the problem. Um, in retrospect, I was having an anxiety attack probably during it, but um, but like it ended up being like a wonderful opportunity, but it was 15 days. We shot the film in my, my childhood home. My parents still live there and my mom's motel, um, that my grandfather did build in the fifties. So we used locations that we had access to. You wrote in, did you write into locations you knew you had when you were writing the script? Yeah. That's very smart. That's, uh, I've heard other people do that. And I'm like, for a first time film, I was wondering, cause it's all the special things to the Lorenzo house. <laughs> yeah. oh my god i love that you saw that <laughs> uh, so you had 15 days did you it was at, at Southside. Where, where does it take place so it's not um and did you how did you put up the cast did you put them up for the whole time were people there did you had some big stars were they there for how did you deal with their schedules and their needs yeah they well, it was so funny because like some some people stayed at one place some people stayed at the other place i remember i remember my one of my producers calling and being like where are you i'm on the 16th floor i was like we're definitely staying at the different places there's <laughs> one floor where i'm staying <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, but like every, oh my God, everyone is so amazing. I just, I, I saw, I miss them. They did, I feel like my family. Um, and, but we did, we put them up, uh, flew people in, uh, some, a lot of the people were based here. Um, Caitlin, who plays my girlfriend in the film, we've been friends for like such a long time. She was, she's been, she was like in many ways, uh, a, a rock for me on set. Um, I, I feel really grateful to have a friend and a collaborator in her. Um, and then Devram, who plays my brother, who's also based here. Um, I, his comedy partner came in and auditioned and told us about this movie that they had made. And so I watched it and I was like, his comedy partner wasn't right for the role. I, I, I liked him a lot. He just wasn't right. But then in watching the movie, I saw Devram and I was like, this guy is perfect. Um, and, and he, uh, he plays my brother and I just adore him, but he was also based here. Uh, and Deirdre was based here. Um, 
but yeah, we, but we didn't house anybody at my mom's motel because it was just get off of set, come back. It would, right. have, been, it would have been too much. So you had to, I mean, how hard was it to convince your mom? And did you convince your mom to close? I mean, she had to close parts of it. She closed the whole hotel. Yeah. Like my parents, like they like really loved me. It was like, you know, um, I'm like very grateful for that. At least they and, did like, before you closed their hotel. Yeah, I was like, which... but I was going to say they really love me. They might love me a little less after, you know, my mom still resents me for the damage of her carpets. Like she's always like the carpets have never been the same. And everyone thinks like everyone thinks shooting a movie is really exciting until it's like happening, you know, oh, in yes, your house. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Like she wanted the crew to wear booties. And I was like, that's not happening. No one's putting booties on. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's definitely like the perception of the making a film and production and then actual production whenever you're there is uh, it's, it's an organized train wreck. And I've seen many, many location owners eyes just bulge out of their heads. Oh, my God. I know. And I didn't want my parents on set for at least the first week because I wanted Kevin, who plays my father and Deirdre, who plays my mother. I wanted them to make choices um, that wasn't impacted by, let's say meeting my parents. So I was like, I was like, mom and dad, you can't come to set for like a week. And that lasted like maybe 45 minutes. They were like, they were like there upon arrival. Like it just like, you know, and- Oh, I'm sorry. I've got this plate of warm cookies and I just didn't know where to put them. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I didn't, didn't work, but it is what it is. Um, and it was funny cause like Deirdre, Deirdre had my mom, and Kevin had my dad just off the script. They just, they were them. Was it, did your parents know that they were being more or less portrayed by these characters? Oh my God. My mom's like, I come off great. <laughs> <laughs> That's so much better than the alternative. So, it's, you know, it's just, it's just interesting because there is a, there is a sensitivity when you write something that's based on people. And, um, I felt like, like I did feel a pressure around that and I was nervous about that, but ultimately there was a story I wanted to tell. And so I just, I just told it, um, at some, I think that that's, uh, at some point you sort of have to let that go. So let's talk about technically more kind of now you have a big cast, a lot of times in the same room, walking around, moving stuff. You're wanting to give freedom to the actors to make choices and do stuff. How did you approach the shot list, the technical side of directing this thing, especially because you're also in the scene? Right. Um, You just don't have the luxury of a lot of improvisation because um, you just have to, when you're moving that quickly, you just have to make sure you break down the scenes um, with shot lists, knowing what you have to get. And then hopefully there's room to play within that and allow um, for some of those improvised gems to sort of surface. Uh, We went through the script. We had a shot list. Ultimately, I, the way I was working was I knew how I wanted every scene. I knew how I wanted the audience to feel when they were watching a particular scene. And so I was just listening to almost, uh, it's kind of like music, you know, when you're, you, you play a a note and you, you can feel if it, if you're hitting that note. Um, that's how I was sort of approaching the scenes. If there, there was an an emotional reverberation, I was looking to sort of feel and read the resonance of it. And then once I felt like we had it, 
um, like moving. Philosophy wise, as a director for comedy stuff, because it's different. It's it's same in that you're telling the story, you're following the characters, but there is a pace and a flow to comedy that doesn't necessarily exist in drama, um, mm. especially in the final edit. So, are you breaking down your shots like, okay, like like a normal line script, like, or are you saying this is going to be a two shot coverage? We're going to follow this side and these two characters in the same shot, the same part of the table, and then this is going to be our moment of you know a single, or we're going to play this in a wide. Like, how are you di- dissecting the comedy? visually right i just think that there's certain things that um that visually are funnier for instance like when there's a part in the movie where um caitlin the actress caitlin mayner um and she plays Haley, where we kiss um by the bushes and bruce jern catches us kiss and i just like it's just funny to have us kiss and then you pull away and then have the camera catch bruce stern like play it very pristine you know straight up you know what i mean two-dimensional yeah and so i was looking for visual opportunities that would enhance the comedy without it feeling slapsticky sure so i mean Um, does that come into how you build into that moment and then who, who made those decisions Okay, the best way I can explain this, for instance, for my performance, because I'm also in it. I, as the actor and director, wanted to make sure that if I was doing a scene, I gave it at least three different ways so that when we got to the edit, I had the option. So if something felt like it was like angry, making sure that there was one take that there was a softness to it, making sure they're making maybe one take that there was more of a, like an edge to it, giving that those, like those options. And and I was trying to get that from everyone so that, um, so we have coverage and then we have tonal options totally. and like and options with in moments. So doing the shot list, I went through it and I had the like, okay, I want, I want this over the shoulder. I want this wide. I want this wide. But I also had like almost like emotional beats um, and, and, and like, and like levels. Like I want this to be an eight. I want this to be a five. I want this to be a seven. <laughs> right. Almost more how you like as a like text analysis for an actor like kind of marrying the two together. Yeah. So how did you, how did you approach giving notes to the people you're sharing screen with, sharing, sharing scenes with? Um, I feel like that could be a very sensitive thing, especially dealing with somebody like, how do you give Bruce Dern a note? You know what I mean? And Stu Good question. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. <laughs> um, I mean like. Bruce. Uh, yeah. Come over. Yeah. I mean, Bruce is like, He's like a, he's like a, he's a character. I mean, he is like, he is him in his fullest expression. And it's like kind of like a, like a blessing to be around because you're like, I want that kind of just like, I'm just going to be me whenever the F I feel like it. Like, I feel like there's something like really inspiring about that. Um, But like there is, like I felt when Cloris walked onto set, it was like, well, who am I to give her direction? You know, Mm -hmm. like, And at the end of the day, I think you just have to have confidence in the fact that like you, that like there's a vision and like when you know what that vision is, it's easier to communicate that to other people. And it doesn't feel, it feels less like from my perspective, it feels less like giving notes 
and more about let's all get on the same page and telling this very specific vision and make it a, a collaborative effort. So much of that process felt like a masterclass um, on many different levels. Like the way, like looking at the, um, like Elaine, Elaine, any moment she will elevate. Like she can, and, and she'll give you options and things that surpass at things that you yourself would have imagined, which I love. I think that's kind of the magic of filmmaking is when all those imaginations come together and like, and Bruce and Claire, there's a freedom within their choices. They're not like, um, they're not self-conscious at all. There's a freedom in the way that they approach, um, the work. Uh, and, and when you allow that, when you allow all that to have space, um, I think there, that's when you have like the, those, those magical moments that sort of surface. And then when something's kind of going off the rails, like stepping in and being like, no, 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 no. The vision, the vision's more over. It's a little bit more over here. I see what you're doing here. Cause it's always coming from a place that's creative. It just might be um, just going on a tangent and then pulling the tangent back into the narrative that you're trying to tell. Right performance, wrong play. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I want to talk now a little bit about the the festival angle and how you, when you finish the film, where you're going with it. And I, you know, when initially, whenever you say we're going to premiere this film in rural Arkansas, most people would think you're crazy. But Bentonville Festival is a different kind of animal, right? As a filmmaker, you think that there's like three festivals you have to premiere in or your life is over. Um, and or I, I just, you know, I can be dramatic, but uh, you know, maybe that's not the case. Uh, but the thing is, is it ended up being like the best, the, the, a huge blessing that we premiered at Bentonville because we ended up winning and, um, and that festival has such the Bentonville film festival has been such a champion for, for me and my work and has, has been so wildly supportive in ways that like, I feel truly grateful for. So it was like this, like really miraculous <laughs> unfold. And like, the thing is, is like, yeah, you're in Arkansas. And like, now I keep going back to Arkansas. I'm like, am I supposed to be in Arkansas? What's happening? But, um, uh, but that festival, it was, it, I had so much fun. And like a lot of the cast came and like an our exec, our executive producer, Bobby Fairley, who's like, all, like dumb and dumber or something about Mary. Like he um, has been so involved in, and supportive and like truly was an executive producer and like in, in, in all the greatest ways somebody can offer their, their wisdom and experience. And, um, and he came to the festival and I just remember like, I was all kind of like parading through main street with like, like booze in our hands walking past like this like confederate statue on the way to the premiere of the film and i was like what is happening <laughs> did you do a bunch of pr and like a big run up to the festival to create buzz as part of your distribution yeah we had people that um yeah we had a, a lot of um support from like outlets um and we had a great publicist involved that was super helpful uh but like, I, I do think like that, that being at Bentonville at that time, it was just kind of like the perfect storm to allow some of those things to unfold the way they did in the timeline that they did. So now looking at where you've, distrib you've distributed the film, it's out there, it's done its run, it's going, did the whole thing come full circle? I mean, specifically for you, do you feel like financially the film was made a success? Obviously you're making more, so somebody's happy with what's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, the Gravitas considered it, they were like very excited with the release of it. Um, so that was that was good. <laughs> so, I was like, I was very happy. And like, I mean, the film surprises me um, continuously. Like, like, like two weeks ago, uh, Variety included a, on a list of like the best comedies on Netflix right now. And it was like on a list of like, some of my favorite films and, 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 you know, when those like tiny, when those like things happen, it, it, it feels good because like, I mean, 10 people could say something wonderful. And then if one person says something negative, it's you're like thinking about the negative thing, you know, <laughs> but like when you get some, when you get those, um, those positive, um, I don't know, like it feels like a positive, like keep doing it sort of thing. <laughs> Well, so whenever you do finally write the the film about, you know, almost dying on a boat with a, you know, with a Napoleonic complex guy, what, oh my God, um, where can people find the information to go see your new work? I mean, I'm easy to find. It's just at Jenna Lorenzo, L-A-U-R-E-N-Z-O. <laughs> and uh, people should check out your film. Go watch it on Netflix. Yeah, I would love that. Well, what are you planning on bringing to your Thanksgiving dinner as a as something to maybe announce or, or say to your family, Steve? I don't think I have anything quite as impactful to announce at my Thanksgiving dinner dinner as that. Uh, my Thanksgiving dinners are in New York with a bunch of friends. And That's so, right. You do the friends, the Friendsgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it usually gets pretty. It's a comedy in and of itself, but not, <laughs> you know, probably not as clean <laughs> as, as Les Bomb. I can't get over the cast that she was able to get, especially as a, a first-time filmmaker. I just think that is so incredible and amazing to have that level of, you know, veteran film actors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels like my sense was, and I'd love to know if this is a sense you got, was that it really was more like a, almost like a play, like a little community where they really got, you know, kind of, you know, that, that, that actor crew kind of did their thing and got on the same page together and just kind of did it. Absolutely. I mean, you get all those all those great actors in in a in one house together. You know, I think there's going to be some great chemistry. And that really leads me to what I think is my biggest takeaway is, you know, there's kind of like an old adage or saying um, casting is half the half the battle or casting is half the work. Right. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest takeaway or one of the big takeaways for me uh, from that conversation is she got such an incredible, um, talented, um, experienced cast all put together and, um, and then she just let them ride, you know, like you said, theatrically almost do less, you know, just let them do what you hired them to do. Absolutely. I mean, that's a hard lesson to learn as a creator that sometimes the best thing you can do is be a little hands off, let the professional do their job. It doesn't hurt to also be um, an incredibly nice and cool oh, and genuine and funny person uh, as well. You know, I can't imagine. <laughs> I, I would imagine it's a very uh, fun and charming experience working with her on set because um, she just has a magnetic energy in general. Yeah, these are just so wonderful when you just immediately like you just uh, like the person, you know, she's just so interesting to talk to and you can tell she cares and she works hard and it's just so fun. Can I, can we talk about, and I know it was nothing to do with independent filmmaking, but can we talk about almost dying on a boat and how crazy that is? <laughs> I, I am surprised she's not written a movie about that yet. 
I would like to work on that movie. I mean, I, I think that's great. Well, you know, like, look, she she kind of premised this as um, or set this up as like a movie about this incredibly heavy subject coming out to your family. And then she said, you know, um, she, you know, she told it as a comedy. Yeah. Um, as I mean, a Thanksgiving comedy. That that would be what that film would be. Right. Yeah. A boat sinking is yeah. always this incredibly heavy drama. And then tell it as a comedy. I mean, that that kind of that kind of would work great yeah i mean it's it's exactly like the book you know the, the screenwriting book save the cat they talk about all the genres that you can do and all the different plot points and they pitch like what about bob and whatever you pitch it in that it's a horror movie like so it really does come down to every every aspect of life well most aspects of life in the world are subject to point of view they are subject to the way in which you want to tell it and i thought that was very telling about her that she started the script you know, much earlier whenever she was dealing with those issues. And that gives you the nuance probably for the story, the things, the realism, the things that affected her. And then as she grew up as a comedian and as a person, she revisited it and wrote it as a comedy because that's what she, that's the area she wanted to work in. So that makes, that's great. That makes total sense to me. I, I do want to say on a, on a production, from a production standpoint, I'll say takeaway wise, uh, own your location you know that, that, that can't be understated if you have a family home or something that you can shoot in and how much of that movie was shot in her family home in her hotel the hotel in the, the hotel yeah Brilliant. own your location i mean own your location start right to thinking what about you it have you know you have this resource use it yeah great and then uh also of course you know we plan 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 but we always have to be ready to be adaptable too. And oh. she talked about that uh, outside scene that had to become an inside because now it's oh, snowing. Yes. In one of her favorite scenes. I mean, again, it just shows the best, you know, the best laid plans. If you're open, you know, and you know what you need out of the scene and you're not so stuck on the technical, sometimes it's the best part. But another 15 day feature. I will just say that. Too. Incredible. <laughs> it is, I mean, it's, it's incredible. The people, the things people can do in such a short amount of time blows my mind. Filmmaking is a collaborative experience, and so is this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Framework underscore Productions for upcoming episode announcements and leave your questions in the comments for our future guests. The first 10 to comment are immediately entered to win a monthly prize. Please take a second to subscribe so you know about future episodes and leave a review. It really does help us. For more information about today's guest, visit independentfilmmakersguide.com to see visuals, diagrams, and to see links to the episode in video and article form. IFG is a community, and we want to help you in your filmmaking process. Hi, I'm Jacob Seidman. I'm an LGBT indie filmmaker from Los Angeles, and I'm reading the credits. IFG is created by Framework Productions and directed by James Allardyce. It's produced by Matt Mundy, edited by Audrey Ray McHale, and hosted by Stephen Pierce. The music is by Glassboy. Find his music on freemusicarchive.org. See and listen to all the episodes, plus bonus content at independentfilmmakersguide.com. Thanks for listening. Hey friends, we just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about two personal things. First, we wanted to thank you, our listening community, and our wonderful guests, learning so much together along the way and continuing to learn sharing our stories, making a lot of new friends, and collaborating, which is exactly what this is all about. Which also brings me to my second point. 
In great part to many of these new relationships, we wanted to let you know that we've taken a lot of this advice ourselves and made our own narrative feature film, Heard, H-E-R-D, Heard, which is premiering this October on Friday the 13th in select theaters as well as on VOD. Personally, I think it's the perfect kind of scary movie to watch during our favorite scary season. So we'd love for you to celebrate with us and watch Heard. You can pre-order it on Apple TV, and of course, do the communal thing, see it in theaters. Of course, for all of this, please see our show notes, but basically, we're going to keep it all updated at herd.film. That's H-E-R-D dot F-I-L-M, herd.film as well. Thank you again, and be sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to build this community and collaborate. IFG, how movies get made.